Listen to your favorite podcasts on any device with Pocket Casts. You can start an episode on your phone during your commute, pick up where you left off on your laptop at work, then finish at home on a smart speaker like Alexa without missing a beat. Download the free Pocket Casts app today for Android or iOS. Find us online at pocketcast.com or use the app on Alexa, Chromecast, Sonos, Apple Watch, and CarPlay. This is the BBC. In Our Time is on its annual break and we'll be back on the 13th of September. Until then, we're offering a podcast each Thursday, chosen from our archive of more than 800 editions, which I hope you'll enjoy. For news of our next season, you can follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. Have a good summer. Hello. The 12th century Renaissance was a term developed by scholars in the 20th century to describe a period of intense and prolonged intellectual, social, creative and technological growth in Western Europe. There was a rebirth in the 1100s in the strict sense of Renaissance as the West rediscovered many classical texts, particularly Greek ones preserved and translated by Muslim scholars. There were also new births of universities, of cities, of theologies, of Gothic cathedrals and of ways to tell stories in the ordinary language of the people rather than scholarly Latin. Their legacies are still with us in buildings uh, and in the embedding of ideas which grew and flourished in the later Italian Renaissance, the Enlightenment and down to the present day. With me to discuss the 12th century Renaissance are Laura Ash, Associate Professor of English at Worcester College, University of Oxford, Elizabeth Van Houtz, Honorary Professor of European Medieval History at the University of Cambridge, and Giles Gasper, Reader in Medieval History at Durham University. Laura Ash, why did the 12th century acquire the term as a century of Renaissance? It was a period of really dramatic, accelerated change in all sorts of fields. I think broadly we could divide them into three. We could say there is economic and social change, uh, there is a huge amount of cultural, intellectual, literary change, and then there is political and legal change. And just to break those down a little bit, um, in economic and social terms, we have the growth of cities and urbanisation in the context of a great increase in population generally across Europe. Um, areas of Europe that hadn't been under cultivation come under cultivation. This higher population is sustained and cities and towns begin to grow at a great rate. So that already brings about a number of changes. Culturally, it's huge. As, as you said, there's the rediscovery of lots of classical texts which had been temporarily lost to Western Europe um, and they were recovered through Greek and often through Arabic scholars. And then with that comes the growth of the universities alongside the cathedral schools, the great cathedral schools of places like Chartres and Canterbury. We're now joined by universities in Bologna and Paris and Oxford and then multiple other cities across Europe. Um, and at this time, then we have the growth of the vernaculars as well. Alongside Latin learning and Latin translation, we now have huge swathes of writing appearing in the vernaculars of Europe, in French first and in German and Italian and English. Um, and with that comes new forms of writing as well. They start writing fiction again for the first time since the classical era. So all of these cultural, literary, intellectual changes are dramatic. And then finally, politically, um, this is a period of increasing stability, the growing strength of the nation state, uh, the growing strength of the church and the papacy. And interestingly, in legal terms, um, the development of grand legal systems, the recovery of Roman law as studied in the University of Bologna and Roman law becomes the form of civil law across most of continental Europe and in England meanwhile we develop our own form of law, the common law system which has its own particular um, culture of 
reasoning and proof and brings about you know the jury system and things like this so all of these things are happening in a period of 150 200 years society is being changed and i think the reason that we call it a renaissance is partly for the technical reason that you mentioned, you know, renaissance, rebirth, recovery of things from the classical past. Um, But also it's because this was a term first applied to the early modern period to suggest that the Middle Ages were this dark, benighted era in between the classical world and the new early modern world. And so in some ways, seizing that term and applying it to the 12th century was a way for medievalists in the 20th century to say, no, that's a misrepresentation. Well, that's a brilliant summary. Shall we all go home? <laughs> no, well, we could unpack no, no, each of those. Second, no, um, people like to think there's one factor. It's hmm. very attractive to think there's one factor. I mean, it comes from belief in monotheism, I think. But never mind. <laughs> Was there one basic factor? You mentioned stability. And the, there had been wars inside, brought to Europe by the Vikings yeah. on one side and the Magyars on the other. The big wars in the 12th century were outside Europe, the, the Crusades, people yeah. pushing. There were squabbles, but that was... Was that the factor, or am I, is this a shimmer looking for a factor? I think you could say that that's a necessary condition. Um, you know, it's all very well to have cultural and intellectual change, but you need not to have people at your gates with fire and sword in order to do that. Um, And certainly in this period, things are calming down a great deal. There are no more great incursions of pagan peoples into Europe at this point. That's over to a great extent. Um, There's the Christianisation of Northern Europe, which takes place during the 10th, 11th centuries, uh, which calms things down. But the growth and, and of course, the um, pushing Europe, Christian Europe begins to push to the south, push into Spain, push into the Middle East in ways rather than it happening the other way. Um, But also the stability, the internal stability, just that the nation states are getting stronger and the church is getting stronger. And although those two forces were often opposed to one another, they tended to combine to calm down a, a culture of endemic warfare. Thank you, Elizabeth. Elizabeth Van Hout, where and how were West Europeans coming into contact with other cultures at that time? Well, there were three main um, areas of um, south- southern Europe where the, those contacts um, took, uh, took place. Um, as Laura has already intimated, uh, in the Near East as a result of the Crusades, Sicily and then um, Spain. Now, it's very important to say that before these contacts, it it wasn't as if the Christians in Northern Europe didn't know that there were um, Muslims in in Southern Europe or in the areas beyond that. Uh, It wasn't as if they didn't know that um, Arab text had... um, rescued the Greek knowledge from the from the classical uh, period but it is the opening up as a result really of enemy action from the Christians in southern Europe that allowed scholars from uh, from the north to um, take active part in in the knowledge that had been acquired in um, Islamic uh, and Arabic um, scholarship but you mentioned that in the Southern Mediterranean and, and you have in Sicily where you have Arab, mm. Jewish and Christian cultures together and there's Cordoba, the famous Cordoba <laughs> of Cordoba, uh, where you have the same as three and you go there now. Mm-hmm. They're, they're within an easy strolling distance of each other, those those three centres. Can you tell us a bit about the, the were those the hub centres that from they which emanated the scholarship that trickled north? Absolutely. Um, so in Cordoba, for example, um, 
Gerald of uh, Cremona um, rescued the text of um, Afinsena, and he brought the Afinsena text to um, a great to Arab scholar, Europe, yes. a great uh, Arab scholar, and particularly an, a scientist. Um, and then um, in um, in Sicily, for example, in um, Palermo. Um, there is an enormous amount of Arab scholarship on medicine, for example, and astrology. Um, and it is the, the, the medical information that is completely different from the very abstract theoretical knowledge that the West um, called medical uh, medical knowledge, whereas the, um, the Arab scholars um, used their own observation of what happened to the body, what happened to um, engagement in uh, in sex as an as a good thing, and that of course abhorred the, uh, the the Christian church no end and was very threatening for the Christian church. Yeah, there was a book. There was a book, a text that came in about about giving birth, wasn't there? Where the Arab scholars were quite detailed about it. Said this is what happened, and the Christians put a relic on the on the extended. Uh, 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 womb of the lady and hope for the best. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. It's, it's the Trotula um, collection of texts from uh, from Sic- Sicily, and we're not entirely sure whether it was meant for doctors or midwives. But it is a completely different text uh, with very practical information that disseminated in uh, Western Europe after uh, the Christians found it in, um, in, southern, uh, in southern Italy. Yes. So the range of knowledge that's coming in is the, the Greek text. Aristotle's beginning to come in there, mm-hmm. uh, and a bit of Plato. Um, but there's also, you say, mathematics, and there's astronomy, mm-hmm. uh, and medicine. Uh, anything else? This is this is gradually the the the, the dam of silence. That doesn't work, does it? Is about to burst. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, um, the Greek knowledge that um, had got um, lost and is being rescued by the uh, Arabs is, um, for example, uh, the text from uh, from Plato um, that um, posited that there was something called an, a world soul that um, lay behind the, the creation of the, of the world. And for Christians, it was very difficult to get your head around because they were told that the nearest thing to a world soul was the Holy Spirit. And it, particularly someone like William of Conge in Chartres who tries to bring the two in uh, to some form of alignment and the Bishop of Chartres is absolutely horrified. So poor William of Conge is being exiled from Chartres and then rescued, interestingly, by layman, um, Duke Geoffrey of, uh, Count Geoffrey of Anjou, who then appoints him as tutor to his three um, sons, one of whom becomes Henry II, King of England. There is this swirl around going, isn't it? Not only between the Arab, Jews and Christian uh, learned men, but the swirl intensifies, uh, I'm looking at you now, Giles, because of the, uh, the, the, the development of universities, the Italy, then it came in Paris, Oxford, Bologna, it started in Bologna, and way it went, Léon, and so on and so forth. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, it's a, a dominant feature of the period, as, as you say, um, built on the sort of economic change that uh, Laura was talking about. You need stability in order to fund these places. You need patrons. But what we see happening throughout the 12th century is a great diversity of communities and centres of learning. So we have schools attached to monasteries. We have schools attached to particular cathedrals. So in the English context, Lincoln uh, Cathedral has a famous set of schools, Hereford Cathedral too. But in some places, 
for different reasons we get a clustering of scholars. This could be for patronage, it could be for particular topics. So in Bologna you get a, a contest between the Holy Roman Empire in the north, the papal powers in the south, and it's in Bologna where these legal tussles are happening. This becomes a great centre for legal learning, and a, a university is founded there in the mid-12th uh, century. We have the um, Charter of Foundation from Frederick Barbarossa. Um, that's a slightly differently run a university. This is one where the students are dominant and they contract the masters to give them uh, their lectures. Why this great surge of universities? I mean, the great surge, I mean, the great surges of the building of Cistercian abbeys from one to 160 in, a, in less than a century, and so on. So, so this is moving ahead with, with enormous rapidity, but in any any age or time. So, what's the surge of universities? Were the monasteries not thought to be good enough? Were they not serving the purposes the ruling people wanted? What was going on? Monasteries retain a sense, uh, an important place in the intellectual landscape, but really what's happening in, in the cities, and particularly in Paris and then in Oxford, is larger collections of scholars who then band together in corporations, and it's that act of incorporation, bringing the scholars together, they regulate themselves. This is something then that the lay patrons can really point to as something that they're sponsoring, but you get these, these autonomous institutions, if you like, and that's the strength then of the institution that, that continues. Is it linked to the aristocracy and a new sense of how politics should be conducted, that things should be written down, uh, that there should be these records, and that, they, that administering it was, was, was a task uh, and not just something you knocked about in a court? Was it anything to do with that? Yeah. If um, so, why? Um, well, Michael Clancy, a uh, great historian of the... Um, of the period talks about this change from memory to written record, yeah. which we can see in a number of different fields, in, in social fields. It's something that does happen in the intellectual field too. They're rather different. If you look at a monastic author, they have time. We have a lot of text from monastic authors. From scholastic authors, those in the university system, we have texts that are notes from students. This is a faster-moving world, but it's still one where the written word, although delivered orally initially, it's the written word that's then copied and passed around. So we do see this change into um, a greater emphasis on writing. And one of the things we see in Michael Lynch's great book on Abelard is how fast they moved around these scholars. I mean, Abelard is moving around, let's call it France, but it was, it was Brit Brittany as well as France. John of Salisbury is moving from England to France, back to England, down to Chartres. And they're, they're moving, it, wonderful, the sort of interchange of scholars going on there. Mm -hmm. Can you develop that? Yeah, I mean, these are uh, genuine communities of learning and they, they do exchange ideas very quickly. Uh, so Abelard's ideas... Um, we have in Durham Cathedral Library evidence that the, the cathedral uh, priory in the 11, late 1120s, 1130s is collecting the latest cutting-edge work from Abelard. So this is moving... I don't think we have cores and peripheries. I think we have communities uh, of scholars uh, moving around. Um, Can we come to the... To the to one core, it, well, it can't be more than one core, can't it? Oh, it's terrible this morning. I don't know what's <laughs> going on. But the, the church yes. there in the 12th century... There's a wonderful dynamic going on because the church is becoming, as I understand it, tell me when I'm wrong, the, the church is becoming more controlling, more demanding, more intrusive, at the same time as there is, we are told there's more individualism, more liberty, more movement. Now then, where's the church? Let's start with them. Okay, so... We have, to, we have to go back slightly to say that there are two reform movements that the church undertakes. First, there's a monastic reform movement in the 10th century when the church takes itself out of quite a chaotic society. So this is before the period we're talking about. And the church is um, 
establishes itself as a moral authority separate from society. And then from that moral basis, that asserted moral basis, the papal reform movement of the 11th century, fully embroiled in in these developments we're talking about, um, begins to say, well, we are the moral authority over all of Europe and we must um, speak to all of Europe about how they should live and how countries should be run. And this manifests itself in ongoing conflicts, um, most notably the investiture conflict where kings want to appoint their own bishops, the church wants to appoint the bishops. Um, but in theoretical terms, um, what you're talking about, this sense in which how can it be that the church is asserting ever greater control over individuals' lives? Which is- which it is, and yet um, individuals are finding modes of self-expression. I think it's partly because the way in which the church attempted to reach into the lives of individuals was by envisaging them as individual souls. And so the idea of confession emerges, the idea that... And the individual confession Exactly, the idea that it's not simply a matter of Um, If you've sinned, you do some public penance and then when you've paid your price, you're fine. I mean, in the 11th century, it was stated, we don't know what's going on in your soul and that's not our our concern, that's God's concern. If you sin, do your penance, you're fine. And then in the 12th century, people start to think this can't be enough. We need to know what's happening inside people, inside their minds. But in in practical eyes, they're demanding confession. They're being much stricter with their clergy Mm -hmm. uh, as the century goes on. Very strict indeed about celibacy, about... uh, about marriage, concubines are out uh, and they've been all over the place till then and so on and so forth and 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 how did the scholars of the church, Elizabeth Van Hoots, how did they, they respond to the classical text? They would call them pagan texts, wouldn't they? They would call them pagan texts. And, and we mustn't forget that uh, the texts from the classical period, the Greek and the Roman texts, had originated in a society that was, um, that was pagan. And um, in particular, not only were they uh, pagan societies, they were polytheistic societies. So societies where people venerated more than one god. So from the Christian perspective, reading the text from the classical period were, was an absolute horror because how can you um, deal with a Christian audience that has been taught from the moment they are baptized that there is only one God, when you then read texts that celebrate a society that, um, you know, is in awe of multiple um, gods. Now, Christianity, I should say, survived the early history of its, uh, of its belief by having a very clever concept um, incorporated in its belief, and that is the concept of the Trinity. Because if you have one God who is also three gods, it's much easier to to explain your um, belief to societies that are pagan and are very, very cautious of leaving behind the god for illness and the god for fertility, etc., etc. So um, to come back to your, uh, to your question, why in the 12th century is the church so cautious about these um, these pagan uh, texts it's, it's it's precisely because they see it as an as a threat here is western christianity that is trying to convert the rest of the world to its own belief and they cannot be absolutely sure that there might be alternative belief systems that um, uh, might 
take over from Christianity because they offer something that is more acceptable. And the Trinity lands everybody with the most difficult problem they ever <laughs> face. Uh, three in one and one in three. And you want to come in? Well, yes, just to um, um, take Elizabeth's point on, there's a lovely phrase from an early 13th century author, Robert Grossetest, where you have to, he says, be very careful not to labour and make Aristotle into a Catholic because in so doing you'll make yourself a heretic. So and that was something that was interesting. I'm, I'm glad you talked more about that. But just to explain a little bit. Uh, pe- people were getting rounded. The scholars were getting rounded because they loved Aristotle but he was pre-Christian so he couldn't be a Christian but they but he they thought he had Christianity in him so they wanted him to be a pre-Christian Christian. How did they get out of that? Well you can recognise him as... Pre-Christ a, Christian is what I mean. You can yeah. recognise him as an authority and it also depends which uh, area of the curriculum you're looking at. So if you're looking at the liberal arts, the mathematical arts as well as the logical arts, then you can have certain discussions that don't necessarily involve talking about doctrine. If you want to talk about theology, then you have more of a problem in having to be quite explicit about Aristotelian problems versus uh, doctrinal problems. Um And it's different at different times too. So the University of Paris shuts down all discussion of Aristotle's natural philosophy from 1210 and this is repeated. The fact that it's repeated tells you that people are of course reading Aristotle's natural philosophy. They're also doing it elsewhere too. So if you want to talk about Aristotle, you go to Oxford. Um, So there are other centres where you can talk about this material. Did they have a similar problem, anything like a similar problem with the, the Arab world as they had with the pagan than they had with the uh, Greek Roman world that's quite interesting Um, and in a sense what part of the issue in the 12th and then early 13th centuries is distinguishing between Arabic commentaries on Aristotle and Aristotle's texts themselves Um, so quite a lot of Aristotle is being translated directly from Greek into Latin the Arabic commentaries are obviously coming from an Arabic tradition and these get absorbed as, as almost equal authorities to the to the other text. Laura, you wanted to come in. Yeah, just to say about the Trinity, that something dramatic that's happening that also has a bearing on your question about individuality at this time is a shift in focus from God the Father and quite an austere figure, a punishing, punitive figure. Old Testament led to some Exactly, up, yeah. exactly. Yeah. To a focus on the suffering Christ. And this came with um, quite a big theological debate um, that Anselm, Um, kicked off and Abelard took on quite importantly that um, the question of why why was Christ incarnated why why have to why do we have to kill Christ at all Um, and the traditional explanation had been that humanity had given over its rights to the devil and that God had to trick the devil into killing the one innocent human which would then redeem the rest of us um, whereas Anselm said the devil never had any rights. This is this is silly. This is because only Christ can pay the debt that we owe to God. Um, but Abelard pointed out the problem in that, which it, I mean, it works brilliantly. But the problem in it is it leaves us with quite an astonishing God, a God who cruelly, purposefully creates his own son and then has him slaughtered. And Abelard said, and it didn't stick immediately, but it became the most influential thing, I think, of the 12th century about the theology of Christ. Abelard said the only reason for this gesture, this dramatic, outrageous gesture, must be to demonstrate love. And it must be so that Christ can show us how much he loves us. And that introduction of the idea of love as central to theology then feeds into the idea of confession but also into affective piety as we call it the kind of piety which is emotionally driven 
Elizabeth, Elizabeth Van Hutz, this, this, as as uh, Laura said, this um, uh, change from mm-hmm. God to Christ, from out there mm-hmm. to a man mm-hmm. on a cross, mm-hmm. is to do associated with the individualism that's been mentioned two or three times so far in the program. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a bit more about that and uh, and how that uh, plays in in in, in the uh, in the changes we're discussing? Well, we talk about an, an, a society that. Um, is um, an, an, a very, on the whole, a poor society. We've have, we have told, we, we have talked about the wealth of cities and uh, the increasing uh, prosperity, but vast numbers of people, you know, ninety-five percent of the population were poor peasants who lived in mud-ridden huts in the countryside, for whom life was very, very hard. So, what? made religion for them easier to absorb is to identify their own hard life and suffering with the suffering of Christ as an as a human being and similarly we we have many tracts written um, specifically for women who um, suffered you know not only in childbirth but um, women lost their husbands women lost children uh, very easily and for women to express their uh, belief again associating that sense of suffering with Christ on the cross is easier than having to deal with abstract notions of dogma that seem very remote very far removed from the experience that they themselves had was just one second. Was the idea of moving? This is simplistic, but to the point, I think, from God to the individual Christ. Was this the churches doing? Who said, "Let's do that"? I think that this is something that this is a movement coming from below that is picked up by the church because the church realizes that if they want to spread um, their belief across the Western world from the top elite right to the bottom and the lowest uh, the lowest peasant, they had to come towards what people wanted rather than be this um, sort of abstract elitist um, ivory tower kind of institution that was not connected with individual uh, believers. Giles, you want to come in? Yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree with, with that one. But it, it does link with the intellectual movements too. That, as Laura was saying earlier, with the the medical knowledge and, and you, Elizabeth, um, there is a great interest in the body and in in the human body and how this works, how you differentiate the human body from animal bodies. So there is a link, I think, between the interest and the new translated literature that's coming from Greco-Arabic uh, medicine that links exactly to these these questions of, of religion and identity. The church, we, in a sense, we can use the church as a sort of centre of this because they're batting hard against what's coming in but also using it to refine what they're doing and to intensify a grip that's probably unparalleled in world history, the, the, the grip that that church had over so many people in so many places at one time. That's Dermot McCulloch, not me, who said <laughs> that, right? Okay, But uh, they did they did their actions provoke heresy or was it in did they did the, the heresy provoke them i'm still um, with Charles. Okay. i think it's and as elizabeth was saying it it's some um, in some senses this must be a bottom-up movement because we're talking about a pre-modern society pre-modern communications you can't impose things on unwilling populations entirely 
But the 12th century church's insistence on regulation, this is what Gerd Tannenbach called the struggle for right order in the world. This is a very important facet of the, of the reform movement. You've got to have the right process of doing things, otherwise the church isn't doing its proper job, in which case everybody's got a problem when they die. The more you start regulating, the more you look for order, the more disorder you'll find. It's like, um, I don't know, the crime statistics. The more crime you look for, the more you'll find. So in a sense whilst there are heresies that that reject Christianity, for example the Cathars although even those are seen through ancient... Aren't they a little bit later the Cathars? They're 12th century, so mm-hmm. Bernard of Clairvaux is the first person to identify them or to, um, to it, debate with them. Yeah. I mean they're identified through ancient lenses, so these are Manichees to 12th century clerical authors. There are other sorts of heretic who are, it's, in some senses you can see them as extreme church reformers just at the wrong time. They're emphasising things that in 1100 might have been all right, in 1200 these definitely are not all right. Laura? Yeah, just to continue with that, I think it's it's striking that the church is telling people to search their own souls and I think in lots of ways heretical movements are the direct result of that, they're just an unintended consequence. If you say to people your personal experience of God is what matters, then they will go away and develop a personal experience of God. But the church's reaction was fierce, I mean people were meant to, well Babylon is one example and throw their manuscripts on on the burning fire and Pope himself burned various um, one work certainly that he'd written and uh, they they really they, did, they didn't just pretend to put them down they were after them yes absolutely and it was brutal um and lots of people were killed in the in the cause of putting down heresies on the other side what we have we've got a century where the romances start the mm-hmm. roman laurels started off but these knightly courtly fictional things which still have a, a pull and still, well, they're regurgitated again and again and again. We're still living in that, I suppose, aren't we? Yes. A reinvention of fiction. Yes. Um, I think this, too, you can see it as part of a technical renaissance because it begins when uh, they begin to translate into the vernacular some classical texts, the stories of Troy and of Rome. Um, you get the French version of the Aeneid. And then they begin to invent their own stuff. Um, and this is part of a theory that, you know, Greece and Troy and Rome used to be where culture is where it matters but now we have our histories and our culture and you get the Arthurian legends and the stories of the French kings of old Um, and it's very clear that this vernacular literature is celebrating a whole new swathe of society which suddenly feels very confident of itself you know celebrating chivalry celebrating courtliness and tournaments and this whole society of conspicuous consumption dedicated to its and own dedication to women rather than dedication sorry interrupt yes you. no absolutely so female patrons are vital to this female patrons at court who um pay for these poets and troubadours to keep singing their praises literally and figuratively um and it therefore makes for quite a different literary culture Elizabeth, <coughs> excuse me, Elizabeth Van Yes, I want to pick up on something that uh, that Laura says: the the, the importance of um, of women for the um, the development of the courtly literature, because in these romances, and and already it starts in the Chanson de Geste, uh, the, the the knights uh, text, you find scenarios played out. Um, for which uh, scenarios from ordinary life for which we don't have equivalent accounts you know there were no newspapers in the in the middle ages so for instance um how you go about getting married um do women give consent 
to marital arrangements uh, put in place by their fathers and their and their husbands. So there is unease amongst women that are forced to do something that they might not really want. And it's the romances that give expression to some of the unease that women, but also men feel about traditions that perhaps they um, ought to um, ought to want to uh, to change, and, and the church is picking up on that. Hence, the um, arrangement at the end of the 12th century, when Alexander III argues that from then onwards, marriage is allowed on the basis of consent by two individual people. It's not parents who organise marriages anymore. But let's come back to the intellectual drive, uh, mm-hmm. the um, philosophical drive, and. Uh, the idea of modern, which came in in mm-hmm. the 12th century, and uh, the, I must say, Abelard was someone near the centre of that, wouldn't you? How, what did he? What does he represent, Peter Abelard? Peter Abelard represents, I would say, the use of reason to get yourself out of intellectual problems. You don't perhaps go back to the Bible and take the Bible as the the, um, the first and the last word of uh, God's truth, but you try to understand the Bible, in particular the contradictory passages in the Bible. And Abelard goes about in a very intellectual manner trying to work out what one should make of God contradicting himself. And again, that posed a challenge to the church authorities because the church authorities wanted their explanation to be accepted without being um, being contradicted and, and, and Abelard made the church authorities think about their um, interpretations of, uh, of dogma. It's interesting, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, the, <coughs> that he invented the, wor- the word theology. So we're in a, we're in lo- he's using logic at the end of his life. He said, I've been hated because of my love of logic. Oh, he said well, it rather better than that, but that's, that's a paraphrase. I think uh, if you talk s- about theology, then I think Giles is the person. Come on, Giles, when you talk about theology. <laughs> yes. Answer that. He is, he is a popularizer of the term. John of Facon in the... Um, uh, 1060s and 70s also uses the word theology but it's in the same sort of context where we're thinking about essentially the theology of the second person of the trinity um, but that's the interesting question that what we're seeing in the 12th century is the separation of biblical studies and theology proper so we're getting a, a division um, from an older way of, of looking at text as simply authorities and Abelard's yes and no method the balancing of authorities so, yeah. so using his logical training because he starts off as an expert in logic and it's the application of that to, to theological texts that becomes the area that's most contested it does become a real battle, doesn't it, just to get out this sort of huge trials in front of the king and the court and bishops turning up from all over the place and he's supposed to make his case and he either refuses to on principle or loses his nerve and he's almost stoned after one of the things. It's real, it's big stuff. And the stoning's important as well. This is stuff that matters to ordinary people as well as mattering in... This isn't just a dry intellectual arcane matter. There's a strong connection drawn by Bernard of Clairvaux between Abelard and Arnold de Brescia, who's a, a demagogue-leading uh, civil upres- uh, um, uprisings in Rome. So this notion of... Um, that there's something really quite socially... Um, destructive about wrong thinking is a very interesting phenomenon as well it's not just Abelard too, Gilbert de la Porre there are other trials where where reason is put on trial if you like. And we're talking about science, who are we talking about there most particularly? 
Science is is interesting. I mean, you've got the the whole group of um, translators from northern England, from England and Germany, so northern Europe, moving to Toledo in Spain. Men like Robert of Ketter and Robert of Chester, uh, already uh, Gerard of Cremona's there, Dominicus Gundis Salinas. You've got other translators, Plato of Tivoli, active in Barcelona. So these names that are not not common, but this is the sort of cutting edge movement. There's a lovely. Um, moment that Daniel of Morley who's uh, another Englishman moving to Toledo talks about where he says that he stopped off in Paris, this is about 1170 stopped off in Paris and they were still teaching the wretched old stuff that they've been teaching 20 years before and he was desperate to get to Toledo to get to the maths, that's what he wanted to, to yeah. go and study. Laura in this period, that's 12th century more, around the more the second half of the 12th century, I mean Notre Dame wasn't big, the Gothic cathedral, they didn't start that about 1160 did they? Anyway, the, uh, can you tell us how political culture and aristocratic culture was developing and what influence they had? Yeah, so in aristocratic culture, the key development is this ideology of chivalry and courtliness, uh, which is explored in the literature, and a sense of the sort of ethical code for lay life. I think this is another unintended consequence of the church's austerity, really, that the church has lots of very strict commands for how you're supposed to live your life, but all of them are negative about the lay life. And as a result, I think aristocratic culture ends up developing its own ethical codes, such as chivalry. Um, so the, the church has turned its back on the way most people live their lives if they're outside the church. I think it's... A, and I the think aristocrats have, have enough now money and heft to do it for themselves. Yeah, I don't I think mean, this was openly acknowledged. Sort of yeah, it wasn't... It, this wasn't an open acknowledgement. I mean, aristocrats always were always properly pious and they gave money to the church. But I think it's really clear that in general terms the church didn't give much advice about how you could be a decent human being who wasn't a monk. Um, they effectively said to aristocrats, the way you live is condemned and if you want to be saved, you're going to have to give it all up before you die. Um, and, and a lot of them gave as much up as they could. Absolutely. Before. And when you when you have time for a good death, then that's wonderful. But there, there is, of course, the constant fear that you won't have time to give all your money to the church and make your reparation and perhaps take vows and officially become a monk on your deathbed. And I just think that this is unsustainable. I don't think you can say to the ruling classes of Europe for hundreds of years, you're not going to get the rewards of your own faith. They had a good gadget, though, didn't they, Elizabeth? <laughs> well... Yes, uh, Laura is Laura is right. When you say um, <coughs> that can't be sustained, it, I mean it was sustained, wasn't it? Um, yeah. I, I mean, Christianity didn't didn't end um, no, be, beca because of no, absolutely. Uh, but what I mean is that it reaches an accommodation. I mean, there's a constant negotiation and accommodation, so that you know, chivalric knights in the 12th century are still accepting being told that they're going to hell. Chivalric knights in the 14th century are blithely saying that God loves them and they're going to heaven, and the church isn't. Well, some they're people are partly bribing their way to heaven. Then, no, they're giving vows some money, <laughs> and, and that ones, is another the accommodation. Ones, they pass on their fortunes to their children. Are going into monasteries for the last lap or so, and Absolutely. becoming and having and a very nice time in a, a very nice and book-lined monastery. Quite so, and therefore, isn't that a negotiation? Christianity yes. survives, but people aren't living in the way the church officially commands them to live. But it's fascinating watching the way. It yeah, but as it is pointed out, we're talking about a very small percentage. The, the 95% <laughs> many of them are having to do what they're told or they're in ter terrible trouble. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us, um, Elizabeth, most people listening to this programme I think the Renaissance, Italy, 15th century. Uh, did this uh, have an influence on that? 
certainly the 12th century uh, Renaissance is, is, a, is a preparation for the, the late medieval uh, Renaissance. The big difference is that the Renaissance of the, um, the 14th and 15th century takes place in very, very wealthy cities where um, the elite of the cities reads, goes back to the pagan, uh, pagan text and you find that instead of um, following church instruction, they begin to see that pagan Rome actually might give them a template for living in uh, the city uh, republics, uh, being enjoying life as a result of the wealth that the elite um, brought in, provided that wealth was um, spent for the benefit of the uh, the Commonwealth. So the, uh, the the massive building programs in the north Italian cities, you know, big piazzas, um, um, palazzi, and sculpture, um, is a celebration of life inspired by the happiness of the Romans who led very successful successful lives during the Republic of um, of Rome. So you see a shift from the <clears throat> penitential life of the Christians in the 12th century, not really very sure whether they can actually enjoy life in the here and now rather than in the uh, hereafter. So that is the main difference, I would say, between uh, the late medieval Renaissance and the 12th century Renaissance. Charles, where do we see most evidence of the 12th century Renaissance today. Today, I mean, um, the the change in the landscape. So, I mean, I think great cathedrals are a, a good place to to look. If you look at uh, somewhere like Chartres, um, this is a product of the 12th century Renaissance. It has windows dedicated to vernacular heroes. So, uh, the the Roland sequence, the Charlemagne uh, window. It has statuary of the liberal arts. It really is the 12th century instantiated. Mm. And anything else? I think that some of the changes that happened in the 12th century inaugurated what we think of as modernity, the idea that you have a psychology that you search inside yourself for self-knowledge and truth, um, the idea that your relationships with other people as well as your relationship with God matter. Well, thank you all very much. That was absolutely fascinating. Thanks to Elizabeth Van Hertz, Laura Ash and Giles Gasper. Next week we'll be discussing the chemist, John Dalton, a Cumbrian, a Quaker. He left school at 12. He ended up as a pioneer of modern atomic theory and Manchester's first cultural hero. Thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. I think it's an interesting point that Laura made about... Um, the um, the sense that people are thinking about themselves in individuals are encouraged to contemplate um, their own actions but they do that not in a sort of Freudian no. manner to um, understand their own psyche or where where they ended up given that as a child they had most <laughs> terrible experiences they do it because this contemplation brings them closer to uh, God and in particular um, the the God figure of uh, of Jesus. So it's it, it's a different psychology. So if you if you use the word psychology, it's it's not Freud that we're talking no, about. It's, uh, but I think it is 
in some ways I think that's what the church intended and that absolutely happens and you see it you see the meditative tradition the idea of searching inside your soul so you connect so that you can connect to Christ to Mary to God but also I think once you've once you've started that hair running you can't stop it people start searching inside themselves for their feelings about their friends their lovers that you know you get a, just a greater attention to interiority to what it means to be a person an individual in the world mm. I mean that that changes and is reinforced by the different types of learning that you get so when you get Avicenna this gives you a different vocabulary for talking mm. about the various types of what's soul. the different vocabulary with Avicenna so you start another, another great Arab scholar absolutely and um, for the first 20 years of the 13th century and the last decade of the 12th century this is even more important than Averroes this is the first sort of big Arabic hero to to be dominant and it's different ways of articulating the, the properties of the soul so he has a long discussion about the vegetative soul um, the animate soul, the rational soul um, and that's a slightly different uh, taxonomy to the way that the West has inherited learning yeah. It's striking the way that people, particularly in the romances, in the fiction, um, it's clear that people's understandings of feelings run ahead of their terminology mm. for it. Mm. So, like when we discussed Tristan a few months ago, um, you know, we have a, an author who said who describes intensely complex feelings and then says, and I don't know what to say about this, but it seems like he was a bit fickle, and he doesn't have the terminology mm. for accurately describing these feelings that are now being explored. And I think that is where the, also the the female patrons come in mm. of these these romances. One of the things that um, has always intrigued me to what extent these female pra- patrons have actually discussions with the, the the poets and the authors of the text, in order to say to them, "Listen, can you bring in a little bit about um, you know regrets or." Um, you know, what, whatever emotion they feel is missing from an, an, a previous uh, text, or whether these women simply, um, you know, provided the, the money and the parchment and the and the ink, but uh, from that moment onwards completely withdrew and sat in the chair and waited for the poem to be de- declared to them. We, we just, uh, we just well, don't know. I mean, know. in some cases, we, so we have Christian de Troyes telling us that Marie de Champagne told him what she wanted mm. him to write, and, and he sounds a bit miffed about this. But the, it's clear, I think, that you, you can see the melding of intellectual and scholastic university culture with court culture when you have comical texts like um, the the court the idea of the courts of love and long love debates following the format of kind of Abelard sick and sick et non you know should you if you are married is that an excuse to refuse an advance from a lover the answer is no by the way <laughs> um, but these these things being debated in sort of comical ways but also in ways that just show that intellectual debate is opening up and is happening in courts and certainly women are taking part in it I mean, it's a slightly different topic, but also that that notion of how ideas do move from different circles. So, Durham Cathedral Priory, it's all an all male environment. It's collecting the latest medical texts, including lots of medical texts on gynaecology. Mm. Um, they're adding some um, comments on this, and you think, what's this doing in an all male uh, institution? Of course, they are men, but they're also dealing with their 
relations, female as well as male. So these are repositories of learning for I for the I suppose you have to hope that they reached out to local doctors and exactly. midwives and said, And a lot of the doctors seem, seem attached to the monastery, so this seems mm. to be a sort of dissemination point for, for knowledge to a much broader... Yeah, um, but of course male monasteries are not devoid of women because there are lots of recluses. You know, mm. every every male monastery has a group of women living in the grounds to uh, to to pray for the souls of the monks because if the monks pray for the souls of the uh, the laity, <coughs> who is going to pray for the for the monks? Well, the monks needed to buy in or make available a corner of their grounds for groups of five or six that recluses. I was very keen that Eloise and the people and the nuns at the Paraclete. Exactly. Pray Absolutely. for him intensively mm-hmm. because they're, they're, they're more, more. And any of these long yep. mm. discussion of how important women are—it's it, very um, uh, in in mm. the Bible mm. and, and that their prayers are more welcomed by God and yeah. so on and so forth. I think one thing I wanted to say was that while it's absolutely true, as Lisbeth said, that um, you know, ninety-five percent of people are living in pretty grim village conditions. I think, particularly in the thirteenth century, we underestimate, or it's easy to underestimate how connected the whole of the country was mm. in terms of... Because particularly the structures in England, manorial courts and honour courts and hundreds, and, and the sense that village communities received proclamations from the king mm. that were circulated and read out in the market square. And then things like um, you know, your hero, Giles Robert Grostest, mm. who, um, who writes to great scholars in Paris and says, stop being a scholar in Paris, that's useless. Come back and take up your diocese, your parish in Lincolnshire. <laughs> And and it seems like some of these people did. So imagine these amazing Paris scholars preaching to to his preaching sermons in rural Lincolnshire. Yeah, um, I don't know how that went, but well, England uh, of course had a reputation of being very wealthy, hmm. and um, you know England was a destination for lots of continental scholars already from the 10th century onwards because um, the um, the pay yes, was probably right. very very good, yeah. much better. Than, Elsewhere in in France or yeah. uh, or Germany. I mean, Grosseteste is he uses Aristotle's Ethics, in fact, to draw up a plan for how you need to resource clergy. Whether are they bad because they've not got enough resources, or because mm. they're morally bad? Um, <laughs> and so this taxonomy works, but he's anxious to resource them properly. But I really like the. It's an episode in the Montaigu story. Um, so this is the the village uh, in the. Pyrenees, which is a heresy centre, but there's one shepherd who's interviewed by the Inquisitor who says, well, actually, I quite like going up into the mountains with the sheep, and I I contemplate Plato and Aristotle when I'm up there. (laughs) And now we're being offered something. I'll offer you tea or coffee. (laughs) (laughs) In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. The Infinite Monkey Cage returns with the 100th episode. And we're going to be asking, what do we know now that we didn't know during our first episode back in November 2009? Now, the 100th episode is very ambitious. We have more guests than we've ever tried to control before. Eric Idle, Katie Brand, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Alice Roberts, Dave Gorman, Andy Hamilton, the Reverend Richard Coles... And Brian Blessed! ...who will be discussing gravitational waves and whether he causes more of them. Mm, I think he does. To find the podcast, just search for The Infinite Monkey Cage wherever in the universe that you're listening right now and hit subscribe.